Lenin lies mummified in his tomb, and maybe someday he will be buried. But what about his followers? Today, let's look at the KPRF, the Communist Party of the Russian Federation. I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. But now, on with today's programme. The Communist Party of the Russian Federation is the primary successor to the CPSU, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. There are marginal, even more extreme parties, such as the Communists of Russia and the Left Front Movement and so forth. And you'd think that the Communist Party is still a formidable force in Russian politics. It's the second largest party in the Duma with 42 seats. Admittedly, that's 42 to United Russia's 343, having secured 13.5 million votes in 2016. In the 2018 presidential elections, their candidate, Pavel Grudinin, again came second to Putin, with 11.77% of the vote. More than double the share, by the way, of the next in line, nationalist blowhard and shock jock Monquet, Vladimir Zhirinovsky. The 76-year-old, I'd mentioned, Communist Party leader, Gennady Zyuganov, I have to say, reminds me of a cross between Nikita Khrushchev and a Zil dump truck. But nonetheless, he is one of the more recognisable figures in the Russian political scene, not least as a perpetual presidential also-run. And of course, that's the point, really. The point of the Communist Party in the political cosmology of the Kremlin, or rather of Staraya Plosha, Old Square, where the political technologists of the presidential administration are based, is for it to be an also-ran, part of the so-called systemic opposition that is distinctly more systemic than opposition. Its job is, first of all, to create the impression of real democratic process rather than one-party statism, but, secondly, not actually to challenge the state's control of the political process. It's noteworthy that the Communist Party, like its populist right-wing counterpart, the Liberal Democrat Party, generally falls into line on key issues. And finally, its role is to be, frankly, sufficiently unappetising not to do too well in the polls. And as Yuganov, the Communists have arguably achieved all three. If one looks at uh, successive elections to the State Duma, the lower chamber of the legislature under Putin, Its share of the vote has fluctuated from 11.6% in 2007 to 19.2% in 2011. Although such is the careful structuring of the actual seat allocation process, that from a high of 92 seats, that's out of 450, in 2007, in the last elections of 2016, they got just 42, their lowest ever, on 13.4% of the vote. So even though they got their second highest share of the public ballots, those political technologists certainly earned their paychecks that time, as, lo and behold, 
The Kremlin's United Russia bloc won a supermajority of 343 seats on 54.2% of the vote. Look, obviously this was the result of a combination of the pre-election use of what's called administrative resources, i.e. all kinds of pressure and blandishments. It's also about a mix of the electoral, use of the electoral system, the iniquities thereof, with its mix of first-past-the-post and regional list mandates. And also it's a result of just straightforward rigging on the day and then in the count. In what frankly might be a mark of pride, the Communist Party recorded its lowest vote, which is 0.02% in Chechnya, where United Russia got 96.29%. Why so low? But in regions like Omsk and Irkutsk in Siberia and Kostroma in central Russia, they got over 20%. So not a not inconsiderable figure. Now, you'd think that Zyuganov would be rather peeved, having devoted his life to this zombie simulacrum of real politics. But, frankly, he seems content enough with his national status, his easy life, his fondness for volleyball and beekeeping. Maybe so, not so much with the people in his actual party. Recently, for example, Sergei Abukhov, who is the secretary of the party's central committee, said that the goal in next year's parliamentary elections was to win 150 seats, which is enough to deny United Russia the 350 seats it needs, even with all the other fake opposition parties. That would represent a, a constitutional majority, able to reform the constitution and so-called constitutional laws. This is a pretty ambitious target, it has to be said. And frankly, a pretty unrealistic one too. But it springs from an interesting confluence of two sometimes complementary, sometimes competitive impulses. Now, first of all, Zyuganov and co. want to be able to retain their value to the Kremlin. In effect, the bigger the vote that they can pull in, the more that they can demand in order to be bought off. Secondly, there's also a younger generation of more liberal progressive types, whom I'll talk about in a moment, who actually think that an opposition party should, well, oppose the Kremlin. So, what is the Communist Party? Well, in my opinion, actually there are three Communist parties in one. First of all, the group that I call the Veterans. This is the traditional rump of the Communist Party, especially pensioners united by a sort of nostalgic vision of a Soviet Union that never was. They are about protecting pensions and the glorious myth of heroic victory in the Great Patriotic War. Frankly, they're pretty Putinist, except that they mistrust his close relationship with the oligarchs and they sentimentally cling to their red flags. The second party are the careerists, like Zyuganov and his sprightly, well, 70-year-old, deputy Ivan Melnikov, and also the generation of machine politicians who are seeking to succeed them. And essentially, look, they're just trying to maintain this balance of being potentially problematic enough for the Kremlin to be worth buying off, but not dangerous. And also, frankly, many of these are deeply corrupt. And we find this particularly in, in local politics. I mean, for example, there was a recent story from Abakan in Khakassia, where Communist Party hacks in City Hall were doing deals with local businessmen who were running public transport, essentially to allow them to bypass the coronavirus restrictions. 
so that they could continue to make a profit and ensuring that they weren't going to be inspected in the process. It's this kind of silly, petty, local, but nonetheless significant corruption, which actually is arguably that much more important and that much more corrosive than the grand corruption of the big beasts around Putin himself. And then there's the third Communist Party, who I call the Progressives. It's a younger generation who basically joined the Communist Party not because they think that Karl Marx wrote a rattling good page-turner, but because the Communist Party is about the best home for those broadly on the left, unhappy with the status quo, yet wanting to be inside the comforting embrace of an actual political party, not just joining protests on the streets or engaging in civic activism on local causes. And these people range from genuine Marxists to, I suppose, what we think of as liberal leftists and even social democrats. So three groups, each of which has its own interests, and often their interests, frankly, do not really combine. The progressive generation, I would suggest, is rising. And even though the veterans still outnumber them, the progressives have, if we're absolutely blunt, demographics on their side as well as energy and a capacity to connect with the so-called non-systemic opposition, obviously represented by Navalny. But we also should remember, there is more to Russia's street opposition than just Alexei Navalny. The prospect of a, some kind of alliance, or more likely entente, between Navalny and the Communist Party has been mooted, even though it is in some ways unlikely. Zyuganov is hardly going to be playing second fiddle to Navalny. And for that matter, Navalny doesn't have a good track record as being anything but the man. Besides, politically, we must realise that Navalny is really, what in European terms would be considered a moderate right-wing liberal. But, first of all, we shouldn't exaggerate the impact of programmatic disagreements. When everybody realises that the first step is breaking the Kremlin's grip, on the political process. There's time enough to debate actual policy when that actual policy means something. Secondly, we shouldn't underestimate the connectivities within the political elites and the wider chattering classes, you know, particularly on a, on a local level. I mean, these people all know each other. In Moscow itself, Navalny is allegedly quite close to Valery Rashkin, who's the city's Communist Party head. In the regions, there's all kinds of other alliances and connections. I mean, for example, in Khabarovsk, where there have been continuing protests about the removal of uh, the, the local governor, Furgal, who was a Liberal Democrat, but nonetheless the Communists have actually been supporting his cause. Third thing, Navalny himself lacks a party. I mean, that's his big problem, and time and time again, the Kremlin has blocked his efforts to form one. Meanwhile, the Communist Party, it lacks the street appeal that Navalny can offer, but it has the only real national political machine which is not wholly bought and paid for and run by the presidential administration. Fourth point, even Zyuganov and the careerists may see a political advantage in some kind of a deal. At present, the presidential administration political team under First Deputy Chief of Staff Sergei Kirienka seem to be favouring Zhirinovsky's Liberal Democrats as a more pliant systemic opposition party. If the role of the systemic opposition is to be drama and distraction, after all, Zhirik, Zhirinovsky, is probably rather better at that. 
They're also creating all kinds of new spoiler parties, such as the Nationalist for Truth one, which is founded by writer Zahar Priyepin, and also New People, which is tailored for small business. You know, the risk for Zyuganov and his pre-mummified cohort is that their value to the presidential administration declines if they don't look like a threat. So maybe he'd be tempted to at least go part way towards some kind of real opposition. Because we are actually seeing some signs of life, even if it is hard to know at this point if it is in spite of or with the cooperation of Zyuganov. In October, a poll by the Romir market research company saw actually Navalny himself rise to fourth most trusted figure in Russia after Putin, Foreign Minister Lavrov and, God help us all, Zhirinovsky. Zyuganov came in at 26th. And the thing is, generally speaking, not just in this poll, but his rating is now substantially lower than his party's. And frankly, politicians, Russian politicians in particular, really pay attention to this kind of, I hesitate to call it beauty parade because there's not much beauty in it. Um, but nonetheless, it, it, it is important to them to see how they stand and therefore, in effect, what is their market value? And I'm actually I'm going to give a, a rather entertaining example of these kind of rankings in the second part of this podcast. So the general pundit consensus is that as Putin's ratings go through something of a bumpy patch, those of politicians and parties that seem to be his patsies suffer disproportionately. So Zyuganov is now looking particularly worried precisely because his opposition has been so weak. So, as I say, we're seeing a bit of movement. Zyuganov himself is beginning to get a little bit more outspoken, a little bit more critical. Figures like Rashkin, who represent a kind of a bridge with the, the progressive generation, they're much more to the fore. There's even, in fact, been talk of nominating Lyubov Sabol, who was one of Navalny's key lieutenants, especially at the moment while he's still recovering in Germany, to the State Duma on the Communist Party list. Obukhov, the, the Secretary of the Central Committee, whom I mentioned, um, is very much pushing a Red Belt strategy of focusing on the major cities, and particularly on avoiding getting sucked into squabbles with the LDPR, and very much focusing on the Kremlin's United Russia Party bloc as the main sort of target. And more broadly, look, the party's strength are in three demographic bands. 18 to 25-year-olds, 45 to 59-year-olds, and 75-plus. Interestingly, in terms of the sort of two big gaps, I mean, it's the children of the 1990s that are pretty much apolitical, whereas the children of the Brezhnev era are pretty anti-communist. Now, of those three bands, you're not going to do much with the 75 pluses, the 45 to 59s, that really it's a question of holding on to them. But what's interesting is they're now looking on a, on a strategy to very much to build on student support, which also means uh, new attention to social media, but also stressing new issues. So not so much about great patriotic war and pensions, but things like new technology. What are the opportunities for the new generation of, of young Russians? And things like environmentalism, which again, I will actually come back to in, in, in part two as well. So, you know, we actually are seeing a whole variety of different initiatives taking place that look as if they're trying to turn the Communist Party into something that is, frankly, alive. Now, 
I suspect that this is the Communist Party's last chance to revive itself. Will it? I honestly don't know. But I do think that if it fails, if this particular gasp fails, then basically the Communist Party is going to die. And if it does, I can't help feeling that the Kremlin may well miss it. Because those liberal, progressive, anti-systemic impulses are going to have to go somewhere. Maybe they'll go to new parties. Maybe the people will just simply be turned off politics and, and go somewhere else. Maybe they'll go towards Navalny or, or other figures like that. The Communist Party has actually been a very powerful engine for controlling those people who, from the left, have a critique, but not, shall we say, the courage to necessarily go out on the streets. Take away that control mechanism and the left will not disappear in Russia. A Russia which today, after all, is in many ways a kind of neoliberal fantasy in which the rights of the worker and the individual counts for very, very little. So you force people into making a choice. Do nothing or get more radical. That's a foolish gauntlet to throw down to the Russian people. So that's my take at the moment on the Communist Party. We'll see how that involves. Now let's take a break and then let me just pick up on three stories that struck me in the past week. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti or on Facebook Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. So, as I said, for this second part, rather than having a single coherent theme, I just wanted to pick up on three interesting and or entertaining news stories from Russia that struck me in the past week. And the first one relates to nicknames. Look, it's quite interesting, I think, often understanding how nicknames work. They tell us a lot about, shall we say, the nicknamer. Whether we're talking about the criminals' use of the so-called klitschka, their underworld nicknames, or even if we think of, of George W. Bush's deeply uh, intellectual Putty Poot for Putin, or, and I still have no idea why, whether it's just simply because of the ex extravagance of his calzatura, but shoes for Berlusconi, the Italian playboy prime minister. Now, it has emerged various of the nicknames that Putin and his entourage use for various Russian figures. Um, Prime Minister Mishustin, for example, is Khrushchev, short for Khrushchev, because he, he does kind of look a bit like the old Soviet leader. Moscow Mayor Sabyanin is apparently bulldozer, both for his willingness to push through any opposition when he's given an order, but also presumably because of his mass reconstruction of the city. Valentina Matvienka, the chairwoman of the Federation Council, has the rather unflattering nickname Valenki, under these rather sort of unsightly, unstylish felt boots of Russians. That's kind of almost tend to me to me look like a sort of medieval Russian Uggs. Zyuganov is apparently and it's it's a pun that works in Russian, Shliapoy, which is supposed hatted, I suppose, um, simply because um, he prashliapil, or, well, let's be polite, messed up three successive chances of being president. 
I suppose you had to be there. And particularly unfairly, I thought, um, Interior Minister Kalokoltsev, who's definitely not one of Putin's inner circle and so forth, he's known as Buks, which is from Buksir, which is a, t- a tow, as in to tow a car or whatever, because the idea is he's often not really understanding what's going on and is therefore stuck and needs a tow out of the mud or whatever. Now, firstly, this is just by hearsay. We, we can't be sure of this. It's not as if uh, Putin or his press spokesperson or whatever are, are going to confirm any of this. But just a minor point about it. it it's interesting because, first of all, the names that we, we know of, at least, are essentially, well, frankly, rather, rather nasty ones. They, they say something, they're, they're disparaging. They're basically, I mean, I suppose with the exception of Sabyanin and Bulldozer, maybe. Um, you know, but they're on, on the whole, they basically are nicknames about mockery. And they, and they do say something, therefore, about the attitude of Putin's inner circle towards all the outsiders, all the, the lesser people. But secondly... I think it's also interesting that this is coming out now. Because after all, I'm sure if these nicknames are in use now, they were in use back in the past. The fact that it's coming out now, when for so long everything about how things happen within Putin's kind of personal life has been kept so secret, suggests something, maybe I'm pushing this a bit too far, about the, the desacralization of Putin's position that people are now more likely and more happy to gossip about him, his attitudes, his life and so forth, and also in a way that is far from especially positive. We'll just have to see. Now, the second story, as I mentioned, is about ratings. The Media Metrics Internet Portal releases regular ratings of Russian politicians based on how much they are on television. Recently, well, the most recent rankings were number one, Vladimir Putin. Now, there's a surprise. Number two, Moscow Mayor Sabyanin. Number three, Alexander Zhupikov. Uh, who? Alexander Zhupikov, you know. United Russia State Duma member from Tambov. Yeah, member of the Committee on Agrarian Affairs. That Alexander Zhupikov. No, of course not. Who else? Who on earth had heard of him? This created a short-lived but rather entertaining storm until it became clear quite what was going on. Media Metrics uses facial recognition software to scan TV channels to assemble its ratings. And it turns out that because of a glitch, it saw Zhupikov whenever, in fact, the famous actor Gosha Kutsenka appeared on TV. Now, Kutsenko appears in current series uh, Skoroya Pamosh, um, Ambulance or First Aid or whatever, as well as New Dating Rules. So hence Zhupikov's apparent ubiquity. Because after all, and here is perhaps the greatest irony, Zhupikov has been a parliamentarian since 2016. And in that time, he has never spoken in a parliamentary session which also does go on to say something about what the job of a parliamentarian in this fake government system really is. So he had his moment of fame. But as I said, the very fact that people were taking this so seriously for a short while before the glitch appeared really shows extent to which actually when politics is all about show, when politics is all about theatricality, then obviously the metrics of theatricality, the ratings, apply. 
Now, the third story relates to someone for whom I have, I think it's fair to say, a mild obsession with. Sergei Ivanov, former KGB high flyer, former defence minister, former deputy prime minister, former presidential administration head, and probably, frankly, pretty credible presidential successor. In 2014, though, his son, Alexander, died in a tragic accident while swimming in the UAE. And by all accounts, his father kind of lost the sharp edge of ambition at that point. And in 2016, he was allowed to step down as uh, chief of staff. And instead, he was appointed to a brand new position as presidential special representative for issues of environment and transport. Look, this might sound like a mere sinecure, but Ivanov is still too substantial not to be a force to be reckoned with, whatever his job title. It's worth noting, after all, that this special representative of the environment also sits on the Security Council. And it also, this position is one that he himself defined for himself, reflecting a genuine enthusiasm and interest. Because this hawkish geopolitical strategist is also deeply committed to environmental issues and particular um, saving endangered animals. Back when he was Deputy Prime Minister, for example, he was absolutely instrumental in creating a huge wildlife reserve. I think from memory it was about a quarter of a million hectares that in the process was able to save the Amur leopard from extinction. Human beings are complex, complex creatures. Anyway, um, on the 29th of November, Interfax ran a very long interview with him in which he talked in, in detail about the problem of rubbish collection and of getting people to recycle, about the Swiss and Japanese models of waste incineration, about the cleanup of polluted parts of the Arctic, including territory that had been used by the military, about the need to enact and apply proper polluter pays rules, and so on. He also, incidentally, sideswiped Russia's aircraft carrier program. Now, for some, this may sound rather bizarre. Pathetic, even. You know, once arguably the second most powerful man in Russia is talking about municipal waste. But I found it rather charming and also quite encouraging. Not just, after all, did he show a detailed knowledge of these issues, but he also evinced, I would say, genuine passion. He could have done almost anything when he stepped down, or indeed, he could have done nothing. But he chose this. There is life after high politics. And maybe, maybe it could even be a model. And Putin himself one day can go on to become a, a judo instructor or a dog groomer. You never know. And on that particular flight of fantasy, I think this is a moment to end this podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. 
И только будь, пожалуйста, со мною, товарищ прав.